But for us, open up your Bibles, as Adam has said, to Ephesians chapter 2. We are continuing the series that we've entitled All Things in Him. And uh, I'd say we've been building on the lessons of the last few weeks. I have to tell you this. Last weekend, I actually uh, I preached in a different church in town, and it got out early, so I came over here, and, and I wanted to kind of see where Billy was going with the message and when I walked in, he was like on his back and his arms and legs were kicking in the air. So I figured I didn't have to worry about transitioning at that point. But I want to give you a little map of where we're going today. And I know that some of us are accustomed to fill in the blanks. That's a culture that we've encouraged. But I'm going to give you this map, and it's an outline. And really, it's going to be focusing on the theme of what it means to be unified in Jesus. Turn to, the, turn to the person next to you, at least one of them, and say, let's be unified in Jesus. Say that right now. <laughs> I, I, I don't believe you're sincere. I don't know. I don't know why. For those of you whose outlines, here's where we're going today. You can see the outline. It'll pop up on the screen. The book called Ephesians is actually a letter written to the church in a place called Ephesus. And I genuinely believe that this book contains, this letter, some of the most important verses in the entire scripture. Paul talks of some of the major themes of the gospel, and we will hit on them this morning. And he addresses them. And we begin to study this letter many weeks ago in June. And we're going to continue. I want you to know the first three chapters of this letter, and we're only in chapter two today or kind of a theological base, an overarching emphasis of doctrine. And it sounds, doctrine sounds heavy, but it's the framework for which we can live and place our hope. And it's kind of high level, explaining what we believe and why. Whereas the last three chapters are more practical in their focus on how to live as a Christ follower, and more precisely, how the church is supposed to function. So you'll be looking at that in the weeks ahead. It's a letter of encouragement, and it's a letter of challenge, written to remind new believers of everything they have in Jesus Christ, and not only to be thankful for it, but also to live as the body of Christ amid a culture that doesn't want to hear about it. You think we can identify with that? In some ways, I can't blame the culture, We've all seen people who identify themselves as the church, but don't always appear to be better people because of it. And that's our challenge. To bring Jesus to the people who need to hear him. To, to, to experience the hope that comes from a faith in Christ alone. So let's dive in. Open up your Bible to uh, Ephesians 2 verse 11. And this passage, I believe, is the apex, the high point of the book. And if you were to go read this letter today on the rest of it, and when you go home, and I think you should, you're going to notice that there's a theme that we are about to consider that's going to be played out over and over again. And the theme is unity. Unity. Before we read the text, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to open up your scriptures as we prayed this morning with the elders. Lord, I pray that the message that 
comes to us today will be your message and that you'll take me out of the equation. May we who gather in this room or are watching online today or in the weeks ahead hear the message that you have for us and be thankful to be your people as we apply it. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let me read verses 11 and 12. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read, I'm not going to read the whole passage. We're going to be looking at 11 through 22, but we're going to take bite-sized chunks and then make some comments about them. Verse 11, therefore, by the way, whenever you see the word therefore, you want to find out what it is, therefore. It's always connected to what happens before it. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I'm not sure this is like a happy message so far. Let's pump the brakes for a minute. Before we go any further, I just want to clarify some terms. When you hear the words Jews, we're talking very specifically about the people of Israel. When you hear the word Gentiles, that means everybody else. That means the Romans, means the Greeks, it means the Ethiopians, it means the Norwegians, it means everybody else. So, Let's look at our, let's go back to the outline. It's on your handout. We're going to see in these verses that there was a problem. Paul, the author of this letter, is writing to the church, and he seems to focus on the audience that was a Gentile in the church. But all the while, his words are meant for them. They're also meant for the Jews who are listening as well. Both sides need to hear this message just as we need to hear it today. God's plan for salvation in the Old Testament came through the the Jewish nation. And while that did not mean that all Jews were truly redeemed people, it meant that the message of redemption and salvation came through the Jewish nation. Circumcision was a source of pride for the Jews. It had been a historical sign of the relationship with God going all the way back to Genesis chapter 17 when God made a promise to Abraham. And while the idea of physical circumcision, and if you don't know what that is, you can Google it. Uh, (laughs) Ask your mother. There you go. (laughs) Ask your dad, someone said. Yes, very good. Yeah. Well, the idea of physical circumcision is used here. Since Jews were known to identify their male children with this practice, the language in these verses is referring to something really much broader than just that physical act. In fact, here it's kind of a a term of derision, a religious slur to call the Gentiles the uncircumcised. It was a put-down. Think of junior hires at the bus stop being mean to the new kid. You're different than us. You're not like us. 
get that, that idea there. We can kind of get a feel for what this language is meaning. We're circumcised. You're not. And in the verses that we read, particularly in verse 12, we're going to see five specific things that were true of the Gentiles in general. And Paul is straight up reminding them that. The first is this. Paul says that you have been separated from Christ. He's not talking about whether you're saved or not. He's not talking about salvation. But the Gentiles had had no exposure to to the Messiah, to Christ, as the Jews had throughout their history. All of Jewish history in the Old Testament was pointing forward to the Messiah, the Messiah who was the anointed one, the Messiah who we now know and worship as Jesus Christ. But this was totally foreign, absolutely foreign to the non-Jewish natives of Ephesus, known as Gentiles. They were separated from Christ. They didn't know. Secondly, Paul says, you've been excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Commonwealth in Greek really just is another word for the state, identifying the nation. They had not been citizens of Israel. The Ephesian Christians were alienated from the theocratic government of ancient Israel, so how they practiced, how they took Sabbath, how they did all of those things would have just been, just been foreign to them. The third thing in verse 12, Paul says, you are, you are strangers to God's promises. God had given Israel promises, often referred to as, as covenants. And the Gentiles weren't a part of those. Fourthly, Paul says, you have no hope. The Gentiles, unless they are specifically converted to Judaism, were without hope, even with their many religions and many gods. And five, and this is powerful, he goes, you are without God in the world. The word here is atheos. He's literally reminding them that They have been atheists. The word atheist is where we get the word atheist. It's a Greek word meaning without God. The word uh, theos in Greek stands for God, and the prefix ah is like putting an un, un in front of our words in English. If I'm happy, great. If I'm not happy, I am unhappy. Well, you believe in God? Great. You don't believe in God, a theos, got it? Paul's saying the Gentiles weren't unworthy people. They just didn't know God. God wasn't a part of their lives because they didn't acknowledge him and it had been a blind spot. So there was this wall. We're going to see it referred to as a wall of hostility But it went both ways. As I mentioned, while this letter was written specifically to the Gentile new Christians, both the Jews and the Gentiles would have read these words. And both groups had some learning to do. They both had blind spots. The members that were Jewish felt they were superior because they had practiced their faith very strictly. And you know what they thought of the Gentiles? They actually referred to them as dogs. But on the other side, if you were a dog, 
If you were a Gentile believer, it looked as though the Jewish believers were just superior, better than everyone else. And it wasn't just a problem in Ephesus, the, the, the city who's receiving this letter, this church. It was a problem in any town where the church was established. In his letter to the Galatian church, Paul corrected the idea that Gentile believers had to first become Jews before they could become Christians. You need to first be circumcised, and then you can consider whether or not you're going to follow Jesus. We see a problem. There was this big fat wall separating the Jewish believers from everybody else in the church, and Paul is reminding them both of their past. And we need to remember this too. There was a point when you and I lived in a world without God and without hope. Maybe you're currently living at that spot and that point. We have all lived or are living that story. It's somewhere along the, the, the path of life here. So don't miss this next section where we see an answer to the problem. We see a solution in verses 13 through 18. I'll give you a heads up. We're going to slow down now. Mike's been going fast. We're going to slow down. Verse 13. But now you have been united in Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near him through the blood of Christ. The solution. But now. What great words. But now we were once without hope. We were lost. We were excluded. But now that's no longer your story. And here's what Paul's trying to get at. At one point in your life, you were without God. And at one point, you were lost in your mistakes, your sin, and you had no hope, just like the Gentiles and the Jews who had to listen to. That's the direction that we're heading in our life. And Paul says there's going to be consequences in this life that we once had death. But guess what? But now... Jesus enters the picture. And our story can change or has changed. You see, our sin kept us from being in a proper relationship with God, but Jesus took the consequences of sin upon himself. He said, you no longer have to suffer for your mistakes. I will suffer in your place. And because of that, we went from being far from God to being near to him. We went from being hopeless to being filled with joy. We went from being excluded from his family to being called his sons and daughters. For all who follow God, we have a new life. So what really was the problem again? And it may sound like I'm beating the bush. I do that because I think we often miss it. 
What were they forgetting that was causing so much trouble? I mean, Jesus has come, right? Well, these two groups of Jesus followers, those who began as Jews and everyone else, had different beliefs and different practices of how they practiced their their faith. The Jews felt others weren't committed enough to be true followers of Jesus, and there had become this great dividing line, this great wall of hostility between them. So you hear the words Jew and Gentile, and we think, oh yeah, I get it. There were two groups of people. They had different kinds of beliefs. You know, I get it. You know, uh, come on, Mike. We live in a a uh, multi-culture uh, here made up of all kinds of people, all kinds of backgrounds. We're sophisticated. So they weren't as sophisticated back then, right? I don't think we get it. Matter of fact, I don't think we get it at all. We don't understand the angst between the Jewish believers and everybody else who was gathered at that church. Maybe if we think about it in a different context. How about attending a church in Alabama made up of slaves and slave owners in the same room, mixed seating? How about a church in the modern Mideast today made up of former Muslims, Arabs, and Jews? How about a church of hippie street people and gospel-loving Baptists. <laughs> I tell you, people, it happened in Southern California in 1972, and the gospel exploded around the world. A church of former Jews and Germans in Europe in 1950. You might sit in a different place in the sanctuary as I was preparing for this message, uh, I was introduced to an individual. I was actually pulled to it because this individual was a, an army chaplain, a Lutheran army chaplain during World War II. His picture's up on the screen. His name is Henry Garricky. I'm pretty sure most of you have never heard of him. He refers to himself as Chappy. I kind of think I want to I wanna hang on that. I kind of... I kind of like Chappie. I may, may go down the road with that. Garricky was from St. Louis. And sometime after the war, he and a Catholic chaplain from New York State were asked to serve as chaplains to the 22 men being tried for Nazi war crimes in Nuremberg. <clears throat> Father O'Connor was assigned the five German officers who were Catholic and Garricky was given the rest. History knows well the names of some of the prisoners. Officers Ermann Goering, Fritz Saki, Wilhelm Keitel, Rudolf Hess, and the leader of the Hitler Youth, and I can't even pronounce his name. These chaplains met with all of them. And there was a big question for those men, the chaplains, going to those rooms. How do you share heaven with someone you want to go to hell? 
Well, Chappie did. He went into the cell walls of hostility. He shared the hope of Jesus, and there isn't time to tell all the stories. So I'll give you just a few. He didn't meet with the same kind of response, but when he met with Fritz Saki, an individual who brought minorities by the train load from Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, into slave camps. He told the chaplain that he had no idea that he was committing any wrong against God or humanity. He was doing his job. Saki received communion before he was hanged. Wilhelm Keitel, Hitler's closest military advisor, told Chappie, you have helped me more than you know. May Christ my Savior stand by me all the way. And Chappie stood on the platform when Keitel was hanged. Not all responded in faith. Ehrman Goering, the leader of the Nazi party, in a prideful tone said, Chappie, uh, this Jesus you speak of? To me, he was just another smart Jew. He swallowed cyanide in a capsule in his cell because he wouldn't be humiliated on the gallows. <clears throat> Think about the wall of hostility between Jews and Nazis in 1942. And I think you begin to feel the tension in the New Testament churches. In our story, the one in the scriptures, these two groups of people were at odds with one another. And it was messing up their church. Paul's writing this letter because he's aware of this hostility and he wants them to get on the same page. He wants them not just to get along. He wants them to be unified. In truth, humanly speaking, we can hardly begin to imagine or hope for the kind of <clears throat> reconciliation between hostile groups like those that I just spoke of. It can't happen is what we say. But in Christ, it did happen. The gospel is so radical, so explosive, so revolutionary, so mind-boggling. To tame the gospel, to reduce it to seven easy steps to be become being nicer, or to domesticate it and make it apply only to the small things in our life, well, that just minimizes what took place on the cross. It minimizes everything that Jesus died for. But before there can be unity, there must first be peace. Uh, as I look around the room and imagine who's watching on, on, online, <clears throat> I can imagine that some of you are married and that there has been moments that you've had a disagreement with your spouse, that there's been a fight. I can only imagine that because I've never personally experienced that. Hmm. It begins innocently enough, and the words heat up. Feelings run deep and they hurt. The disagreement becomes exaggerated. 
and you find yourself separated and alone. Something has to happen, but before there can be unity, there has to be peace. So where was the peace here going to come from? Look at verses 14 through 16. Paul says, for he, speaking of Jesus, he is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Think of that last verse again. Together as one body, Jesus reconciled both groups because of his death on the cross. And the hostility between people is put to death. How? Jesus. Jesus, he is what brings peace to the hostility. You know, any of us who've been around the church for any length of time can recognize how God saves us from eternal punishment. We get that. We talk about that a lot. But Jesus' sacrifice on the cross goes a lot further. It goes a lot further than that. It's not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. Paul is telling us, not only do we no longer have to suffer the eternal consequences of our sin, but also the things that used to keep us apart, the things that we used to fight about, the things that divided us, our differences, our opinions, our lifestyles, all those things no longer divide us. Jesus put to death on the cross our hostility towards each other. Listen, because of what Jesus did on the cross, you and I, we can live at peace, not only with each other, but with those people. Jesus' death on the cross allows us to enter into heaven one day and enter into community with each other now. He brought peace to our relationships with God and our relationships with each other. So let me ask you the question. Do you see that peace today? Does it seem like hostility has been put to death? I'm not talking about what's going on in places in the world that you've never been. I mean here. Roseburg. Redeemers. Your house. Do you see peace? Peace with your family? Peace with your friends? Peace with your neighbors, coworkers? Is is there peace? I know I'm getting personal, but... Let me get a little more personal. 
Can you say in your life that there's no hostility towards the person that worships God different than you? Can you say there is peace between you and that person who has a different theology than you do? Can you hold a conversation with a Christian that voted for someone you didn't vote for? How about the person that posts all sorts of ridiculous things on Facebook? (laughs) Or the people with a megaphone at the farmer's market? Are you at peace with them? Let me be clear. There are things that there are things that should separate people, but they aren't those things. You know what I love about redeemers? Many years ago, in the 90s, when I was a pastor at a different church, it was my observation that I wish I was at that church, redeemers. Redeemers is full of people who on many things, style, theology, politics, the roles of certain people, uh, they wouldn't agree. They don't agree. Even today, they don't agree. But I've never been part of another church that has been more unified about the things that matter than this church. If you're new to Redeemers, I want to tell you, that's the church you're visiting today. We want to be unified in the things that matter. We've looked at the problem, the wall of hostility. We've looked at the solution, Jesus. The last few verses, let's look at the result. Verses 19 through 22. What happens when Jesus is the solution? We read, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul gives us here three, three images. Three images where these two groups who were once odds with one another, where they are now. He says, first, now they're carrying the same passport. You're going to say, Mike, what? I would tell you that some passports are red, some are green, some are blue. Ours is navy blue in the USA. If you're ever boarding an international flight, you get a real feel for the fact that the people in line with you are coming from different places in the world because their passport doesn't look like yours. But we are told that because of Jesus, we hold the same passport. We are fellow citizens in something called the kingdom of God. Jews and Gentiles, they no longer use the old passport, they use the new one. Jews who embrace Jesus as Messiah are no longer strangers. And the Gentiles, 
who were aliens. They're aliens no longer. They belong. They're fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. God's people made holy because of what Jesus did on the cross. Race, nationality, no difference. We all have equal standing before God through Jesus Christ. That's the first image. The second image in these verses that we recognize is that we're part of the same family, that we are members of the household of God. To be a citizen of the same country or the same kingdom, that's a great privilege, but it can still be rather impersonal. If you're standing in line at the airport and there's other people with navy blue passports, it doesn't mean you know them and they don't know you. But to be a member of a household is personal and more intimate. Family members know one another pretty well. And in Paul's day, even more than ours, to be a member of a household meant refuge, protection, and identity. They're part of the same kingdom with the same passport. They're part of the same family. And the third image we see in these verses is they have the same house. Speaking of a building here, a building made of people. It's a living building a living, with a living foundation, the text says. Foundation built on the apostles and prophets. Secured by a living cornerstone, Jesus Christ. If I were Billy and I had time, it never slows him down. Uh, I would geek out about the engineering of a building right now. I would tell you how important a cornerstone is, that it is the first one to be set in the building process, perfectly square, establishing the dimensions of the building, providing a visible structure for the rest of the building, and in modern buildings, identifies the structure by name. Paul's telling us that Jesus is the perfectly established stone from which all other stones find their proper role and function. He is the one that binds the entire building together, giving it strength, alignment, and unity. Who are the stones? Where are the stones? The Jews had once worshipped in a temple made of stone, but they weren't in Jerusalem. And in less than a decade from when this letter was written, the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. That is why the temple Paul writes about is different. This is a building made of people. Ethnic hostility had become a barrier in the New Testament church. And in this letter, Paul was calling them out. And it raises a question for us. What are some of the barriers that have to be overcome in our church today? Church here and churches everywhere. The barriers could be relational infighting, battles over preferences, theological debates, politics, 
The family of God is the church. And the church is the place where God dwells. It is the place where we are known. It is a place that we find unity because of what Christ has done for us. All of us. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for these words, words that were written to a different people at a different time, but we don't have to use our imagination to see how they apply to us. Lord, we ask that you would have us look at our own lives and take a good, solid, hard look at the things that we may have contributed to some wall that separates us from other people. Father, I would pray that we would be reminded that those walls are not what you intend and that you have sent your son to be the solution to it. May we hold tightly, tightly, to what Jesus has done for us. May the world see that. And in seeing that, see the unity we have in being your church. Remind us. Remind us if we are visiting in this room. Remind us if we are new to the faith. Remind us if we've been here a very long time and if we're just forgotten. Help us put the important things in the middle of our faith. For we pray in the name of a Father who loves us and the Son who died for us and the Spirit within us.